Good morning. Uh, I think you've heard once before, but let me say it once again. Last Wednesday was the first session of uh, CBCBI, Community Bible Chapel Bible Institute, and uh, David teaches two lessons in that. And if you look in the uh, foyer, you will find that there are two stacks of CDs, so be sure you take two of them. Uh, so that you can get a sample or a, a copy, if you were there, of, of that. And uh, let me just encourage you who have not yet been there that you may want to get a sample by listening to that and then be here on Wednesday night. I'm sure you will find it worth your time. All right, we're in Lesson 18 of uh, Near to the Heart of God, and we're dealing with Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 through verse uh, 5 of chapter 8. I realize that I have dealt with those uh, late verses from chapter 7 last week, but I want to sort of refocus, uh, if I can, and come back to those as a launching pad for chapter 8. When I was uh, studying for this message, my mind was taken back uh, for obvious reasons in one sense, because Stephen talks about the law being given after the pattern that was shown to Moses. But it, it reminded me, uh, the, the whole story of the stoning of Stephen reminded me of something that we read in John chapter 12. Do you remember that the, uh, the high priest, Caiaphas, says these words uh, to his peers, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people. And that, what, and that the whole nation should not perish. You remember that John goes on to tell us that he said this not because he was pious, but because God used him. I hate to say it, sort of like Balaam's donkey. But he used him to speak that which was truth. And as the high priest, he was speaking of the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So even though he did not intend for the meaning to be what it was, it was more than he thought it was. Now, when you come to Acts chapter 6 and you look at the accusations that are made against uh, Stephen, I find these fascinating in the light of our text in Hebrews. Look at chapter 6, verse beginning at verse 13. They, these Hellenistic Jews that were unable to speak authoritatively and contradict what Stephen was saying, they brought forward, forward false witnesses who said, this man does not stop saying things against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him saying that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the council looked intently at Stephen and saw his face was like the face of an angel." I find that fascinating because it takes us back to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 when he is receiving the law and his face glows, remember? And so it is like, in a sense, Stephen is not one who is opposed to the law. He is like the one through whom the law came. But when you think about that text for a minute, there are some observations that may be helpful for us. First thing is that similar accusations were made against our Lord Jesus. Remember at his trial and even in his crucifixion, people were saying he talked about destroying the temple. 
and, and about a bit bringing it back again. Mark 14:58 would be just one of those texts where that is true. So Stephen is accused of the same things that Jesus was accused of speaking. These charges were the charges that somehow galvanized the opposition, that is, the Jewish opposition, to the degree that they were willing to do something they were unwilling to do with Jesus, and that is, in a mob-like fashion, they were willing to step outside of the law and to uh, stone Stephen publicly uh, in, in just basically a riotous, almost, manner. So these charges were, were viewed as so serious to Judaism that they just couldn't let them pass unchallenged and unsilenced. These charges were prophetic. When you think about it, these actually are charges that have some truth, just like the words of Caiaphas. The fact is that the temple is going to be destroyed. The fact is Jesus is the temple. And, and so uh, you're going to find, as we come into Hebrews, you're going to discover that the things, the customs that Moses dealt with, the, the old covenant, the old law, is going to be set aside in the sense that it's fulfilled and it is going to be superseded by the new. That doesn't remove all of the value, but it means things are going to change with respect to the law. And these things are the very subject matter of the book of Hebrews. That's what I find interesting. These people who falsely accused Stephen of these things were right in the sense that that's exactly where Christianity was leading. And they are, they are right in the sense that they reveal to us the intensity with which unbelieving Judaism deals with teaching that goes here. So if you place the readers, the original readers who are Hebrew Christians, you see that they, in effect, are siding with Stephen. And Stephen died for what he, believed, what, he, what he was accused of teaching and, in reality, what would be the substance of the New Testament teaching. So these are very, very significant truths that we are dealing with in the book of Hebrews and in effect, they cost Stephen his life, even though at that moment in time, the opposition did not really know them to be true. That's where it was all heading. So let's talk about Hebrews chapter 8 for a moment, if we can. I've got two messages, this message and the next, before we have a break. And so I was trying, I was agonizing, if you want the truth, as to how in the world I would break these up. And I decided that I would take chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, and focus on those this Sunday. And then next week, I would focus on the remainder of the chapter, which is verses 6 through 13. And as you know, that is a almost a recitation of Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, the New Covenant. So we want to talk about the New Covenant. And then after a break, we'll come back to Hebrews uh, chapter 9. So let's look at how I'm going to approach this. And I basically told you I'm going to focus this week on chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, with a sort of lead-in from those last verses of chapter 7. This is a, in, in the last verses of chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, we have a summary of the superiority of Christ in his priesthood as opposed to the ironic order of priests. Then you have in verses 2 through 5, and, and specifically in verses 2 and 5, you have the, uh, the true tabernacle uh, described and introduced 
uh, to us there. And then you have, uh, in verse 5, you have the author's use of Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40. Another one of those instances where the writer to the Hebrews picks a text that we would have passed by without noting and without comment. He, he picks upon that text and he focuses on that and says there is a lesson for us. Just like Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110 verse 4, he is going to go to this quote uh, in Exodus 25 verse 40. So we'll look at that and then we'll look at the whole issue of shadows versus substance as they're dealt with in verses 2 through 5. And then we'll talk about the implications not only for the first century believers who were Hebrew Christians primarily, that are the recipients, and for us as well. So let's talk about such a high priest in verses 26 through 28. Let me just read that uh, from the New American Standard. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need uh, daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. So here we have a sort of summation of what it is so far that makes our Lord Jesus Christ superior to the Aaronic order of priest. He is undefiled by sin. And we talked about that. I, I stole a little from myself this morning at the Lord's Supper. But when you look at the elements, when you look at the bread, and you notice that it is without yeast, without leaven, it symbolizes the perfection of our Lord. The lamb that was to be sacrificed as the Passover lamb was a lamb that was without blemish because it was to picture Christ who had no sin. And so he is without sin. He needs no sacrifice for himself, as we read in verse 27. Unlike the priests who were weak, who were sinners, and who constantly had to be offering sacrifices for their sins, not to mention the sins of the people. What a difference between Jesus and the ironic order of priesthood. It is a heavenly ministry. That's one of the things that is picked up uh, in our text uh, in verse 26. And again, it will be picked up again in chapter 8 and verse 1. In other words, his headquarters are in heaven. And, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that because it is interesting. Where you have your headquarters says a lot. Uh, I remember when I had my first uh, office uh, I was in a warehouse that was up close to Central Expressway, and there was a little office area in the front. But it really didn't have any heat to speak of because they didn't need to heat it for the furniture that was stored there. And so I had an electric heater that was kind of blowing on my feet and whatever. But I have to tell you, it's a lot different than the Oval Office. There isn't the status and whatever attached to that. Well, the Oval Office pales in significance to the heavenly office where our Lord, you might say, has his headquarters. It is a sacrifice that is once for all. There is no need for him to make daily sacrifices for himself or even for the people because of who he is. One sacrifice is sufficient for all time. 
very much unlike the priests who are sacrificing till the cows come home and then some in the Old Testament order. He offered himself up as the sacrifice, 727. The Old Testament priests offered up animals for sacrifices. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as our great high priest, offered up himself as the sacrifice that was once for all uh, eternity. The uh, sacrifice by the Old Testament priests was by ancestry, whereas the, the, uh, the office of priesthood uh, for our Lord is an appointment by divine oath. So ancestry, divine oath that is stayed by the Father, that makes him superior, verse 28. And our high priest is the Son when you go back to Psalm 2 and you go back to Psalm 110, you see the son who is reigning from his throne. So our high priest is one who has authority, who can deal with his enemies and make things right. And he is our high priest, made perfect forever. Now remember, that's the point that was made last week, is that the problem with the Old Testament order and the Old Testament Aaronic priesthood is that they couldn't make perfect. That is, they could not draw men near to God. Our high priest is one who is made perfect forever. So he can, as our high priest, make us perfect in him. So the main point that the author is getting at in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. He says, now the main point of what we are saying is this. And by the way, there are, there are various ways of translating that, but I think that it really is accurate to say. He's saying, the essence of what I'm trying to say, the main thing I want to get across to you is this. Not just a summary, but the main point, the essence. We have such a high priest one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary, and the true tabernacle that the Lord, not men, set up. It's interesting that you have a follow-through from chapter 27 and verse 26. We have, it says, such a high priest. And what we see again in chapter 8 we have such a high priest, he says, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So you have such a high priest, and then you have in verse 26, he is exalted above the heavens in chapter 8 and verse 1. He has seated, been seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is a high priest who is such a high priest as he has been describing and that is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is exalted above the heavens and seated enthroned in the heavens. He has, therefore, a heavenly ministry. And that's really a move that's going to take us a lot further in, in the book of Hebrews. But this focus on the heavenly aspect of the ministry of our Lord Jesus. So verses 3 through 5 will play that out a little more fully. And, and then this whole theme that we're talking about, the heavenly order and the true tabernacle uh, that is the, the, uh, the basis for the pattern which will be given to Moses and so on, and the pattern which is played out in the Aaronic priesthood, in the ceremonies, in the tabernacle, and all of that, in the feasts, 
uh, will be carried through in, in the remainder of the book of Hebrews. So this theme that's introduced in verse 2 and verse 5, you will see again, for instance, at chapter 9, verse 11. Let's look at it. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. So it's not the earthly tabernacle. It's this heavenly tabernacle, if, if you would, this perfect, perfect tabernacle uh, that is not made with hands, not of this creation. Uh, verses 23 and 24 of chapter 9. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. That is, those copies, the, the earthly aspects of the tabernacle and the furnishings and all of that were to be sanctified or cleansed with the blood of animals. But the essence of that is what is heavenly. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these... For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So there is in these Old Testament images a pattern, a likeness, a prototypicalness, but the real fulfillment, the perfect, is something that is heavenly. Uh, and that's what the author will be talking about further. You can see that in chapter 10, verse 1, and also in 10, verses 19 and 20. So this is a theme that he's introducing that is going to be played out throughout the remainder of the book of Hebrews. Now let's talk about the true tabernacle. And let's think, when you look at this in a way, when I, when I studied this, I, I thought to myself, wow, this is kind of new. And yet, when you stop to think about it, it's not really that new at all. When you look at the Old Testament, you see all of these prototypes that are looking forward, that are pointing forward to eternal realities, to heavenly realities, or to often, mainly, to our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you look at Abraham, for example, and we see the Abrahamic covenant that is given to, to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And God is going to bless him. He's going to make a, a mighty nation with many people. And he is going to bless them. And they will be a blessing then to, to all of the nations of the earth. It isn't really Abraham. It's his seed who is going to be the source of that blessing. And ultimately, that seed is Christ. So the promises made to Abraham will be fulfilled in Christ. Abraham, in that sense, is a foreshadowing of Christ, but it is Christ who is the ultimate fulfillment. Moses is prototypical in chapter 18 of the book of Deuteronomy. He says, God is going to raise up for you a prophet like me. And that prophet is Jesus. He is the one who is going to speak, and, and uh, Moses says, and you better listen to him, which is exactly what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says. We better be careful about neglecting what this one who has spoken for God from heaven has to say to us. David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have the Davidic covenant and the, and the promise that his house, his dynasty will be eternal. And we know that ultimately that is going to be fulfilled in the person of Christ, not in David himself, but in his seed. And so in the New Testament, our Lord Jesus is called the son of David. He is the one who fulfills that promise that is made to David. So the shadow, as it were, were David, the substance is Christ.
The Exodus. Here's one that we could spend a lot of time uh, on. But, but when you look at the Exodus, you see it is a pattern, it is a prototype of the salvation that God is going to bring. And you see that taking place in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 2, it says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Well, what does that call to mind? It's saying, just as I was with you when you passed through the waters of the Red Sea, just as I was with you when you passed through the waters of the Jordan, I'm going to be with you in the difficult times that are ahead. Uh, in chapter 43 and, and verse 16, you see another instance of that. The, it, it's What God is saying is, look at what I did to bring salvation to the nation Israel through the Exodus. That is a prototype of the salvation I am going to bring to pass in the future as I bring it about in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's no surprise then that our Lord Jesus would be likened to the Passover lamb, is it? That's Exodus chapter 12. But then we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed, we read. John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So these things that were spoken of the Passover Lamb are pointing us to its perfection that will be fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus. The brazen serpent, John chapter 3. Just as the Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So these Old Testament events, these Old Testament uh, uh, rituals point forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. They ought not to seem to us to be new and unfamiliar territory, even as we look at the Old Testament use of the Old Testament. Now, when you look at the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we discover this whole thing about the true, as he says, true tabernacle in verse 2. The true tabernacle is that which is the ultimate fulfillment and the ultimate reality, and the other things are a foreshadowing. So, when you see our Lord Jesus in John chapter 2, we see him as the true temple. That is, the dwelling place of God is really in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, John says, he tabernacled amongst us. God dwelt amongst men in the Son, the Lord Jesus. He is the true light, John chapter 1 and verse 9. He is the true bread. So here in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, they're saying, give us this bread forevermore. <laughs> and Jesus says, you know, Moses didn't give you that bread. God gave you that bread. But the true bread, the bread which gives men everlasting life, is the Son who came down from heaven. I am the ultimate fulfillment of this prototype of bread that you see in the Old Testament. John chapter 15, verse 1, he is the true vine. So when we see this statement about the true tabernacle, it's not without New Testament precedent. This is the fulfillment, the ultimate reality, the heavenly reality, if you would, of these earthly symbols that we see. So the true tabernacle in chapter 8, verses 2 through 5. You have the author's use of Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40 in chapter 8 and verse 5. And let's look at that for a second. You've got the occasion. 
When you think about Exodus chapter uh, 25, this is the time when the law is being given. Remember, that starts in Exodus chapter 20. And in a sense, it has this interruption at Exodus chapter 32 because that's when Aaron's down there fashioning the golden calf and the people are doing all these terrible things and and it looks like the whole plan is, is going up in smoke. But the occasion is the giving of the law, and even more specifically, the giving of the law as it relates to the construction of the tabernacle and and the carrying out of the priesthood and their rituals. And the thing that's fascinating about that is at the very beginning in chapter 24, uh, verses 9 through 11, you have this picture which just boggles my brain uh, of of the uh, elders and Moses being up on the mountain and seeing this, uh, what I would say is a prototype, a foreshadowing of heaven. Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself, Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. Now, the reason I say that is that we haven't yet come to the verse where our Lord says to Moses, you make the tabernacle and its furnishings according to the pattern I will show you. So 24 comes ahead of the revelation of what that tabernacle is to look like, and yet here you see the 70 elders of Israel and, and, uh, and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu looking on. And the best I can see in that is they see a prototype. They see a picture of heaven. Now, if you look at other texts like Ezekiel and Revelation, you will discover that it's not, it's not exactly the same uh, descriptive words, but it's very much like them. I mean, when you look up and you see the sapphire and whatever, folks, doesn't that look heavenly to you? And, and, I, and it's interesting that somehow the leaders of Israel needed to have a vision of what God was like and what heaven was like before they got the law. So it's almost as though this prototype that's going to come in the law needs to have a glimpse of what the ultimate reality is, and God gives it to those elders. Now, we read what exactly what they saw, or at least a description, a partial description of what they saw. When you come to, uh, to Moses, it simply says to, to Moses, God simply says to him, you are to do, build the tabernacle and construct it according to the pattern I've shown you. We are not told what the description of that pattern was. But it is obvious that he has given some kind of picture of what this ought to look like. It's sort of like uh, looking at architectural plans, which for me is like looking at an accountant's summation of, of uh, accounting. It doesn't mean a thing. But, but when you look at all the layout that an architect does... Do you ever notice that often in, in projected uh, buildings or sites, they will have an artist's image of what it's all going to look like when it's done? You know, so that the rest, all of us ignorant people, can actually see what those, those plans are supposed to come out like. 
And, and that's what God does for Moses. He gives him some kind of a picture, and then he lays out for him, as it were, the architectural plans for the tabernacle and how they are to be done. So that Moses has in his mind a picture of what this is to look like as uh, these skilled artisans are creating these things uh, for the tabernacle uh, and, and the worship of Israel. Okay. So you see in Exodus 25, in a number of places, at 26 and 27, this instruction that this t- the tabernacle is to be built according to the pattern that God has laid out for Moses. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 44, Stephen says the same thing. So God has somehow revealed to Moses, here is what it looks like. Here is a, a, a glimpse at the eternal reality, and this thing on earth is a prototype of sorts that looks forward to that. Here's the irony of that. I never really looked at Exodus 32 in the light of that. But here, here, leading up to the failure of Israel where they have this golden calf, here is Moses up in heaven who is receiving the law, and that is the written revelation, as it were. It is the disclosure of what God is like. Is that not true? People are to see what God is like by looking at his law. Remember, you can't see what God is like by looking at some image because there isn't one. That's why idols were wrong. So God is given a description of what he is like, and we see that in the law. And in a a sense, Moses is up on the mountain getting this picture of what God is like to take back to the people. And in his absence, the people are saying, we don't have anything to look at. So we need something that will be a visual aid for our worship. And what do they do? Voila, they come up with a golden calf that looks amazingly like what the heathen would have in worship because they've seen that before. And so they make this. And here's Aaron, who is the high priest, or going to be, and he leads them in this heathen ritual at the very time the reality of God is being exposed up here sort of in the heavenlies, on the mountain, and they're down here carrying on because they don't have anything to see over a 40-day period, by the way, this great long gap of time that they find impossible to bear. The irony of it all. I'm going to ask this question last. What did God show Moses? I'm not quite sure that I know, but... It's interesting that in chapter 8 and verse 5 in the New American Standard, for example, and in most of the translations, it says these things serve as a copy and a shadow. If you look at the Net Bible, it says a sketch, a sketch and a shadow. And and it gives a footnote along the side that explains why they've chosen that. But I think they're right for this reason. What is a copy? Well, you have, for instance, a a Xerox copy. I could take an original uh, uh, manuscript or something, and I can take it in on the copy machine, and it's going to be close, right? It's going to be an approximation. Or you could have a great work of art, and somebody could do a, a, a reproduction of that. So it is very much like it. In fact, it may fool those of us who are not experts in art, and we may think it's the original. It's that close. But my question is, is that really what God is showing Moses? Is what he sees 
a, a, a tabernacle. I, I think it may well be that he has actually given, as it were, a, a PowerPoint presentation, so to speak, of the temple and its elements. But is that really the ultimate of what he sees, especially in the light of chapter 24, where the 70 elders of Israel see this vision of heaven? Isn't what they see in a sketchy form something that points to Christ, but isn't really him? For instance, the rock that followed them was Christ. But but Christ isn't really a rock in the sense that you look at him and he's a stone that somehow tumbles along in the, in the wilderness. Or the other things that were a picture, the Passover lamb. He, he isn't really a literal lamb. All of these things are, are prototypes that point forward to their fulfillment in Christ. So I'm not quite sure exactly what Moses saw. I think he did see some sense in which the ultimate play out of that is carried through. If the if the elders of Israel got to see God seated in the heavens, then I suspect Moses got to see more. And so in that sense, my sense is Moses sees the ultimate uh, fulfillment. Uh, go back with me to John chapter 8. Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Now, if Abraham saw Jesus' day and rejoiced, then I think Moses did too. And so I think that Moses saw something about the ultimate reality. And then God says, here is a pattern and a picture that will point forward to him. So he sees this in light of this. And as a result, the, the, the tabernacle is constructed. That's my best shot. Now, let's talk about some of the ways in which this may bear upon us. One, is it not interesting in the light of our worship this morning, and Gordon and I, did, and I did not collaborate, but isn't it interesting that with Gordon's emphasis on the majesty of creation, isn't it interesting that our text basically says, our Lord is lifted up and exalted. He passed through the heavens. He sits enthroned above the heavens, and he rules over all. If the heavens are as great as we think they are, and they're really much greater, if they are that great, then how much greater is the one who sits enthroned over the heavens and rules? And I think that's, that's a, a vital thing that this uh, description in Hebrews is trying to say. It is a word picture, I confess. But it is a picture of the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is one that we desperately need. Secondly, do not assume that shadows are evil. I want to, uh, uh, there's a way in which whenever we come to these texts that talk about the New Testament, the New Covenant superseding the Old, there is a way in which we might look back and with a jaundiced eye. And what I would say is this. The old order was not perfect, but it brought us along the road toward perfection in Christ. So don't, don't look at the old order as leading us astray. Now, the old order, as, as unbelieving Judaism saw it, it's pointing the other way. But the old order, in terms of its intent, was to point us forward to Christ. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I was thinking about this in the context of perfection being, being equal to being drawn near to God. Look at what this says. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And look at starting at verse 5. 
See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are going to entering to possess it. So keep and do them. That is, these commandments, the law that he's given. For that is your wisdom and your understanding. Must not be bad. And that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. It's wisdom. In the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near... See, when we look back, because of our relationship with Christ, we look back at the Old Testament and we see all these barriers and barricades between men and God. But the perspective from the Old Testament saint in, in comparison or contrast to the pagan worlds is their gods were distant and removed. They couldn't speak. They couldn't talk. You carried them around on your back. And it says, God is so near. God is nearer to his people here than he has ever been before. Now, he is nearer to us than that. But all I'm saying is, it wasn't bad for an Old Testament saint. The law helped you draw near, as near as you could. But it wasn't near enough to be perfection, as it is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, verse 8 goes on to say, Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgment as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So let us keep those verses in mind. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law, and the priesthood were not evil. They led us, they led the Israelites into a closer relationship with God, but it is nothing compared to the intimacy we have in Christ. So in that sense, the new is better, the, the old is not bad. B, the heavenly realities have been revealed and fulfilled in Christ. When you think about it, and you think about this, the shadows versus the substance, so far as I can see, the substance always equals Christ. Now you find that, for example, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, all these Jewish Old Testament rituals, things which were a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Passover lamb is Christ. The rock that followed them is Christ. All of it ultimately finds its consummation and fulfillment in Christ. And that we see, for instance, uh, all through the scriptures. And, and by the way, when you look then in, in Revelation uh, chapter 21, verse 22, there is no temple there. So if you're looking at this idealized thing that Moses saw, he's not going to see a building. In reality, he's going to see... God the Father and God the Son, because they are the dwelling place, Revelation tells us. It all comes down to Christ. See, these, oh, by the way, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20, the veil. What is the veil that he passed through, according to the writer of the Hebrews? Christ's flesh. That's what he says. The veil is his flesh. My point is the reality 
toward which these Old Testament shadows point is the reality of Christ. Okay, I've worked on that long enough. These realities are not seen but spoken. They are revealed in his word. See, that was the thing that God was doing with Moses on the mountain. He was going to reveal himself through his word. And those commandments were a revelation of the righteousness of God. And so men saw God in that way, not through some golden bull or some other device that was an idol. They saw God through his word. And Hebrews tells us God has now, though he spoke partially and in different ways in the in, in times gone by, he now has spoken to us fully and finally in his son, 1, 1 through 4. And he says, we, if we neglect that word, are, are, are going to drift away. So we need to listen to his word. Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith focuses on those things which are not seen. But those things that are not seen are heard. Isn't that not right? When we get to chapter 11, what is it that enables Abraham and all those others to believe in God? It is that God has spoken and they take him at his word. That's where we see God revealed and that's what we must believe. But because it is not seen, it must be done by faith rather than by sight. Okay, I could get excited about that, but let's move on. Implications. For, uh, for the Hebrew recipients. If all of these Old Testament foreshadowings find their fulfillment in Christ, then what good does it do one to see Christ as the fulfillment and then turn from him and go back to the shadows? It makes no sense at all. Why would you go to the shadows when they point to Christ as the substance? So therefore, to go back to the shadows is to reject Christ, where all of those things point. And that's what the author, of course, is saying to his Hebrew recipients. For all Christians, for all of us to turn back away from Christ to anything else is to move away from him. And, 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 the, and the sad part of it is, for people today, what's worse is when we turn away after things that aren't even shadows. They're just mirages. Satan has a way of holding things out for us to which we turn. For example, uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that Timothy is to instruct people not to place their, their confidence and their faith in the uncertainty of riches. Riches, in, in one sense, they're not one of those Old Testament shadows. Although, frankly, Judaism saw it that way. And that was the proof of piety. But those things were, were, were not reality and yet we find ourselves sometimes tempted to pursue things that weren't even shadows in the Old Testament. They're substitutes, not shadows. A vision of God is foundational to the Christian life. I think that's really true. I think that's why God reveals himself to the elders uh, in Exodus chapter 24. It's why God reveals himself to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. It's why God reveals himself to us. But our vision of God is not a vision that we see with our eyes. It is something that we see through our ears by listening to his word. God has revealed himself in his son and his son is the word. He is the one who proclaims the word. He is the one whose word has been verified and validated by signs and wonders and so on in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4.
It is a vision that is not spoken, or seen, but spoken. Now, I got this last point thanks to John Piper, and I think it's very significant. He says that because of the, of the transition from the shadow to the substance, the shadow isn't necessary anymore. And, and here's what he's saying. We don't have to have the, the Old Testament tabernacle or the Old Testament temple. We don't have to have the Old Testament priests or the Old Testament sacrifices or even observe the Old Testament rituals. Paul makes that clear in the New Testament. Jews are free to do that, but we don't have to have that. But what he says is that opens the door for worship to take place in a whole uh, interesting variety of ways. And he says, isn't it interesting that when you look at the word worship as it used, we call it worship leaders, worship service, worship this, worship hymns, worship that. He says, in almost every instance in which that is used, it is a way in which the Bible never used the word worship. So what we have done is we've transposed worship and we said, worship looks like this. When it seems to me that what we're saying is, yes, for the Jew, worship looked like this, but it pointed us there. And now that we are there, we find its fulfillment in Christ. We don't have to go through those Old Testament rituals. And people in Africa don't have to worship precisely the way that people worship in America. Now, it must center in Christ, of course. But there is openness there. And what, what Piper then goes on to say is, that's what missions is about. He says missions in terms of the Old Testament was come and see. And in the New Testament, it's go and tell. So that when we go forth, we don't have to take our culture and our definitions of that which is worship and superimpose them upon people and say, you will sing Amazing Grace to the same tune we do. Now, maybe they will. Or maybe they'll sing it to another tune. But the point is, when we take the gospel universally to people, we don't have to keep the old trappings. And in fact, trying to keep those trappings is what gets us in trouble. That's why I think, coming back to Acts chapter 7, that's why I think the Hellenistic Jews were so uptight about the implications of the gospel. Because their identity was tied with the Old Testament rituals. Their identity was tied with the temple. And when anybody came and said or implied that the temple would have to go, that was their identity. No wonder they were so hopping mad. But the reality is our identity is Christ. It's Christ. We don't have to have all those forms and rituals. And when we stick to those things, we find ourselves not free to worship as, as freely as God may intend or to share the gospel as broadly as God has purposed for us to do. So that, it seems to me, is what our author wants us to think about as we look at this whole subject of shadow and substance. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to understand these things. These are great texts, many of them over our heads, most of them. But we ask that you would give us enlightenment and understanding and that we may apply these things in our own lives to the glory that belongs to you. May we have our focus on you. May our worship be about you. May our gospel be about you. May everything we do be about you. For you are the substance of
to which all of the shadows point. If there is someone here this morning who has never trusted in the Lord Jesus, then I pray that you would make it clear to them that the Lord Jesus came as the perfect sinless Son of God who bore our sins upon himself and that they might trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.